Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. I am so excited for the voice coming your way in just a minute, but first, a few requests. Please subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you like what you're hearing and want others to hear it too, a kind rating is the best way to boost us in the rankings and search, so I kindly encourage that. Secondly, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold, and now you can buy the second edition. It's a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news, those who shoot and edit their own stories. We've got all new interviews and updates for the new edition. I'm hearing really nice feedback. Again, that is the Solo Video Journalist on sale now. You know, I find it both exciting and humbling that even after nearly two decades in the business, even after hosting this podcast, judging various awards, speaking at workshops, and doing any number of things that connect me with great storytellers, there's always someone I haven't met or haven't heard of for no one's fault other than my own, whose work I then discover and who I immediately find inspiring. That's what happened with the man you're about to meet. He started as a visual journalist in the Middle East when he was a teenager. He's won a Peabody Award, a DuPont, and numerous other honors. He's covered stories all around the world, and his latest, the one that drew my attention, was a half-hour documentary for NBC News called The Intersection, Fatherhood at the Heart of George Floyd Square. Ed O, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Hello. It's uh, great to be with you. Ed, the, uh, the reason I gave that introduction is because I, it really is true. I, there's always someone out there in this business who can show you a new way who can teach you techniques, who can inspire you. And, and we as journalists and storytellers, you know, we really need to be aware of that because it only helps us to constantly introduce ourselves to work that we admire. And it's part of why I do this podcast, to hopefully introduce people like yourself to reporters and photojournalists who are so busy with their own stuff, they don't always get to notice the work being done like pe by people like yourself. So before we get into the work you've done and, and the situations you've been in, and your entire career, uh, go ahead and give the quick 60-second summary of just where you've been and, and most recently what you've been doing. Um, so for the last four years, I was working at NBC News. Uh, I was uh, making documentaries for them. Uh, I was part of this team that started out uh, called Left Field uh, when I joined NBC. And kind of like my mandate or our mandate was to make like documentaries specifically for the internet that's like kind of breaks out of that broadcast mold. And so I'd been making, you know, documentaries for a while and kind of transitioning from photojournalism and like video journalism to more like long form documentaries. So at NBC, um, I was working on like more like longer form docs. Like I made a feature there about the intersection of policing and mental illness. I did a documentary on the drug war. I did another documentary where I like post Charlottesville about like people being radicalized into neo-nazi movements and so the most recent one uh was yeah i was sent to minneapolis for to cover news and kind of like do the day-to-day -day. and i found uh you know a documentary kind of like within that and so the way that i work is kind of like responding to breaking news as like a breaking news journalist and then kind of staying longer to find like the docs and the long form like more intimate stuff within the news 
Mm. So that's kind of how I've been working. And we'll get to that documentary in a bit, and I want to dive deep into it. But I first wanted to back it up a little bit. You know, I was reading your bio, and, and you've covered a laundry list of particularly tense situations through your career. War in the Middle East, the Arab Spring in 2011, white nationalist hideouts. You do a lot of the work that many of us would either hesitate to do or simply decide not to do. Have you been drawn to those situations? Is it just where the work has taken you? How do you find yourself in those environments? Well, I think as journalists, it's kind of in our DNA to be drawn to, I guess, the heartbeat of the world where it's like pulsing the most or, you know, like, <laughs> I think that's just kind of like where we go, you know, like where there is stuff happening or where there's stories that we can tell. You know, there was a lot, a lot of focus on the Middle East after 9-11 and for better or for worse. Uh, so that's where I moved. I studied Arabic. Um, but then as, you know, different stories shifted, you know, like the Arab Spring, we, you know, we ended up in Egypt and then we ended up in Libya, then Yemen, et cetera. So I think the, the time that I started my career, there was a lot of focus on the Middle East, but I also did branch out to looking at other places. I was based in Nairobi for a while, Central Asia for a while, and then I think moving to the states four years ago you know that was pretty consistent with like where a lot of the world was focusing uh with you know stories here and so i don't know i think i've just usually just bounced around to where people are paying attention to what what does that mean that you ended up in these different places like did you move there physically did you get work there what how what exactly does that mean um, yeah, so when I started out, um, I studied Arabic uh, in the Middle East, and so that I, I studied international relations, and so that was like the focus of my work. Uh, I never actually studied journalism formally, uh, but in the Middle East, uh, I got an internship uh, with the Associated Press and started working there. And it's not like I fell into journalism, but I met a few wire photographers uh, at that time. It was actually really specific. Like I was studying in Jerusalem, and um, the, there's always stuff happening. And so there's a huge contingent of Israeli photojournalists. There's a huge contingent of foreign photojournalists and Palestinian journalists. And, you know, you would always see them at these like protests and different events. This is like at the tail end of the Intifada. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of news there. And what I found was what drew me to the photographers was that you would have Israeli wire photographers and Palestinian wire photographers, all with like a very specific mission, which is to tell the same story from different perspectives. And the, seeing just how journalism was kind of like a, a bridge between these two very similar but disparate, but also these two cultures in conflict with each other, um, watching kind of like journalists like of different stripes and allegiances kind of like work towards the same truth, I thought was like incredibly beautiful. And, you know, and so that's what kind of drew me to the power of journalism and what that could do to help, you know, bridge cultures and really help us like understand like, or see a common humanity within each other. And so from the moment that like I started taking pictures, I was kind of hooked because it, being a photojournalist, and when I say photojournalist, I mean this in the stills context, because I know yeah. in TV, like, photojournalists are also, like, you had, like, camera. So I'm talking about stills photography. Right. Um, 
being a photojournalist uh, at that time, especially for wires, was just so interesting because you would see such a gamut of news, uh, whether it's like a protest or a war, or also just like these quiet features that you would see on the streets, or if the you know price of beef went up, you'd have to go to the grocery store and photograph something in a, in a artful way. <laughs> and I think, um, so I was like really drawn to like just the wires, uh, because it they're just, in my opinion, like the truest practitioners of unbiased and very, very pure form of journalism. This is just like, here's what happened. And that's kind of like how I ended up uh, working there. And uh, sorry, I completely forgot your question. But that's like, okay. I've enjoyed the answer. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, it was um, getting into the field, like in, in the Middle East, there was a really specific time because there was so much attention on the things that happened. You know, like it, there was the war between Israel and Hezbollah in 2006. And then there's a, you know, like the Iraq war was happening and there was a lot of questions that were that specifically, you know, in the U.S. context prodded on like what is America's engagement with this country and how has American foreign policy been doing a disservice or a service to people in the Middle East. And so that was kind of how we I started uh, looking at that place Um I moved to Yemen and was an Arabic student there for a while. And then while I was in Yemen, I was also taking pictures. Um, and then I ended up getting an internship with the New York Times uh, when I was still in uni. And then that's how I ended up in kind of like the orbit of the New York Times. Um, and that's actually how I then transitioned from uh, stills photography to video is that around that time that I was like working at the Times, their video unit had just kind of like started ramping up. And it was like a really fascinating intersection between where the evolution of where stills photography and like photojournalism was like meeting like video and uh, like cinema or cinematic documentaries and not to nerd out, but this is like 2008, 2009 when the five, the Canon 5D Mark II came out and all of a sudden photographers had the power to record like very, cinematic video on their 5ds and it kind of it was really interesting because i'm of a kind of generation that never really watched television like i don't really get my news from broadcast television but that doesn't mean to say that i don't watch documentaries or you know like i think and it was kind of during that intersection that i really transitioned from like stills photography to video because it was kind of like part of the same thread of storytelling that was different than broadcast. Mm. And so that's kind of like, if I think about the trajectory of the way that I've covered things, it's been, you know, consistently following the trends of like the mediums. And I think that's been kind of interesting. And fast forward then, you know, a little more than 10 years and you're working for NBC news. You've been working with left field. Left field is no more as, as of, you know, uh, I want to say early last year. And so, you know, it's May of 2020. We're in this pandemic. George Floyd is killed. And protests begin almost immediately in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. I assume you learned you'd be heading there pretty early. Yeah, I asked to go um, when it, you know, it was a really 
strange time 2020 of last year like for all of us yeah um i had been at that time you know in march we were all locked down working from home which for me actually didn't really change much in my life because we you know, we work in the field so like the idea of going to an office as a journalist already doesn't make sense to me anyway <laughs> and so i found myself actually like weirdly more productive being able to just like never have to go and go into an office uh, because you know like our jobs are in the field like if i'm sitting behind a desk i'm not doing my job but so anyway the side note but yeah so i had been working on another documentary uh following uh this paramedic uh who i'd met in yonkers and so he's like the only person that i've been like seeing on a day-to-day -day basis kind of like embedded with uh, EMS and first responders as they respond to COVID cases. And so that was what I was working on for like from April to May. And so when George Floyd happened, when we saw that video, it was kind of like this very specific swirl of, you know, like, you know, it was the same day where around that same time that this video um, of the woman in Central Park uh, where he, she, called the police on a bird watcher, a black uh, bird watcher. And I remember like watching that and then watching the George Floyd video. And for me, all these things about race were like swirling in a really specific way that like for myself, like as an Asian person, like during COVID and in the time leading up to that, and even now, like I too was getting like a lot of really specific hate for, for, everything that happened uh, because of COVID. Hmm. And again, not to conflate, I'm not saying that my experience as an Asian person is any way similar to the black experience. I know they're very different, but I think I remember like watching that video, those two videos in succession to be like, wow, these are like, there's so much of this conversation that needs to be had. And so uh, when protests started in Minneapolis, I specifically asked to go and it took a second or a few days to kind of like for NBC to kind of act on that. Um, but I ended up going. Now yeah. you've talked about, uh, it was, it was a, a, a violent ride out there for you and you, you know, you, you came away with some injuries, uh, during your time shooting. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you've talked about this before. I, 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 I'm sure a lot of people are not familiar with it, especially those just meeting you through this podcast. Can you talk a little bit about just what you experienced during the protests? Um, yeah, so the first day I got there, actually, um, we landed and uh, uh, my reporting partner, uh, we kind of like went straight from the airport to uh, this one square where people have gathered. Um, and yeah, it was actually also keep in context um, that covering the, these protests, it was the first time that we had been in a mass group of people like we had in three months, out, probably and not seen anyone for months. It was the first time I was on a plane to get to Minneapolis. And there were a lot of discussions whether like we should even be traveling, et cetera. And yeah, it was kind of like that specific time was covering COVID in New York and being so aware of being next to nobody, being aware of our social distancing and just like what that means. I was living essentially by myself, like seconded to my flat, except for the times I was shooting. And, you know, it was just so like we, we all remember it. And then you know, I went to JFK Airport and it was completely empty. And then no one was flying except for the plane to Minneapolis, which was essentially full of journalists. Um, and so 
going from the airport, we got a car and then just ended up like in the middle of you know these these rallies before the curfew. And when it started out, it was quite peaceful. It was actually um, when we were shooting, you know, I was getting a lot of interviews with people and just kind of like getting the scene and getting the vibe. And uh, when the curfew came, uh, basically the cops came in, the state patrol uh, came in and told everyone to disperse. We, you know, as journalists are exempt from this curfew. So we kind of like just gathered to one side kind of away from like where the protesters were. Um, there wasn't that much like protesting going on. It was mostly people holding rallies and like just talking. And then kind of completely out of nowhere, the the police start shooting um, concussion grenades at us, at us very specifically, this like gaggle of journalists that were all, at, that I was a part of off to the side. And so I got hit in the face by something I don't know what, I think it was like either uh, concussion grenade shrapnel or something and then the cops came up to us and i got pepper spray in the face beaten with batons and they threw a bunch of stuff at me and then more it was it was a mess and um yeah we were very clearly targeted by the security forces there and like it's it's difficult to think about because this is not a country in which that should happen but basically i was hit in the face uh with something pepper sprayed and i had a huge gash on my forehead so i ended up having to go to the hospital to like get stitches on my forehead and now i have a scar here for the rest of my life mm-hmm. um but, they... so that happened uh but then we just got back to work and then we we were filming so that that was yeah was it difficult to maintain your composure after something like that happens like in the days following that you know or do you kind of I don't want to say get lost in, in what you're covering because obviously that that's probably not the right terminology, but, you know, maybe refocus on what you're covering and try to, you know, be so immersed in that that you don't necessarily think about what you had gone through the night before. Yeah, at the end of the day, like, the story is not about us as journalists, and I always feel really weird because I never want to trespass on the very real grievances, pain, suffering that people who we cover are experiencing, you know, at the end of the day, like, I feel very privileged that we are able to, I don't want to use the word parachute, but that we can like enter into people's lives and kind of like, ask of them, you know, like to open up their stories, their vulnerabilities and all this stuff to us. And so like, I have a really weird time thinking about myself in context of that, because it's not about us as journalists, it's about the people we cover. Um, so I tried to keep that in mind. Like, you know, after I got back from the hospital, like I, it took an hour to like clean the pepper spray off my face and everything, but I still had to file. Um, it wasn't like, the news doesn't stop because we as journalists are attacked, like we have a job to do. And so that's kind of like the way I, I just saw that because, you know, like, it's not about us, but it was also very difficult because uh, being pepper sprayed in the face, I really couldn't see that well for the next few weeks or months, actually. Um, and then, yeah, every time I would go out, my face would burn and my my forehead would just like start you know, bleeding and all my cameras uh, were covered in pepper spray. And so I couldn't use a lot of the stuff. And even right now, the microphone I'm recording this on, like, if I like move it the wrong way, the windsock like lets out some like pepper spray, which still blood. It's, it's oh my goodness. pretty intense. But from like a, 
coverage point of view, it really shook me in the sense that, like, I had always more or less felt safe covering America, you know, like, because in the sense that, like, you, you know, the police are not supposed to target journalists. And, like, but when that happened, that kind of set the tone or it made it hard for me to cover protests the following days without being very aware that's like wow the cops can and will target you as a journalist and that played out in the weeks of you know the george floyd protests and that really did kind of reframe the way that i felt safe in terms of like covering stories in america which was a shame and i think we're all as journalists kind of like struggling with that i think to this Mm -hmm. day this is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He's Ed O, nationally award-winning visual journalist, most recently with NBC News. And we were talking, you know, we've been talking about this time you spent in the Twin Cities covering the protests protests after uh, George Floyd was killed. And, you know, you go out there with the intent of, of essentially covering breaking news. Like you said, you're filing daily, even after getting pepper sprayed and going to the hospital. But at some point, you discover the seeds of what would become a half-hour documentary about fatherhood, and particularly fatherhood for men of color. Take me through how those connections were formed and at what point you realized that you had a a long-term investment on your hands here. Yeah, for sure. Um, So it's really hard to go into any breaking news situation with, like, a character or a story in mind. Like, I think that's kind of the thing is that like when you're covering breaking news, it's when everyone's emotions are really high and people are like very willing to open up and talk to you. And so like, I think we all, we as journalists and maybe I speak for myself, but you tell me, but like every time we go to breaking news, I'm always thinking like, crap, crap, crap. Like what am I, what's my, what story am I going to file? Like what, who, who are my characters? What am I going to find? Et cetera, et cetera. And I think in that way, like there's, you always feel really, I always feel like I don't know how to approach people or like what stories I should be finding because like, you just have to like, file a package that night and do something and you have to write an article or you have to like take, you know, like, and so going into breaking news is always kind of like a blur because you just want to show what's happening, but also then find wider characters within that. And so we had kind of like done a few day stories uh, in both like print photo and then video. And so what ended up happening was uh, over the course of like many days of following these protests, um, I went to a, uh, a memorial for a lot of the people in the Twin Cities uh, who had family members killed by the police in various uh, situations. So Philando Castile's mother was there. And, you know, there's people that, you know, a lot of people didn't make national news, but there was someone named Brian Quinones who had a, uh, who had a, he was emotionally distressed and he had a confrontation with police and you know the family will say that the police used excessive force um and the police will say that their use of force was justified because this person brian canonis charged the police with a knife and so this was the context for this memorial picnic uh slash balloon release um to kind of commemorate these lives and george floyd's uh, girlfriend uh ended up there and so 
at the end of this, uh, this kid, Tyson, got up on the picnic table and just made this like really rousing speech uh, about, you know, like what it's like to lose someone to police shooting. And that was the first time I met him. And so immediately I was like, the, all the cameras were just gravitated towards this kid. And he just gave the speech and then he got off and then he hugged his dad. And I just filmed this interaction. And the moment I met them, I'm just like, wow, you guys have such an interesting story. And so I asked Jamie, the father, like, can I, I, I'm Ed, I'm a journalist at NBC. I don't know anything about you because I just met you, but can I, can I follow you home? Can I, I want to tell, I want to know more about you. And then I found out that he lived literally on the same block where George Floyd was killed. And so, which was kind of like quite a specific coincidence that, you know, this person who already had, you know, his, it was already affected by a lot of these issues is also now affected by the fact that George Floyd was killed a block away from his house and like that kind of like and so immediately i got his number just went on with him and started working from there and, and, and let me like, let me stop you for one second here ed are you by yourself at this point or are you with a reporter i'm by myself okay uh i'm also working with a reporter but we kind of like split up in different ways but at this point she was gone and i was kind of by myself got it and this was like four five six days into you know covering i forget but like it was like multiple days after covering this and the nice thing was that because this is going to sound kind of callous, but, um, you know, attention of news organizations wane. And so, like, after a lot of, you know, the journalists had kind of, like, left because they think the breaking news is gone, I think that's, like, that's, for me, the best time to find stories when no one's expecting anything of you or you, that when you don't have to file to, like, quote, feed the beast. I think it really, like, that's the the best time to like really dig into stories. And so from there, um, I just started to hang out with Jamie and Tyson over the course of many days uh, and just stayed. And I think- How many days are we talking about? Uh, I spent a week with them afterwards. And then I went back to Minneapolis to work on a unrelated story about um, unsheltered, uh, about people who are unsheltered uh, during COVID and the intersection between you know homelessness and you know, the housing crisis, COVID, and the George Floyd protests. Uh, so I did a bunch of stories uh, in August. So during that time, like, I would check in with this family as well. And so I would say, you know, weeks-ish, months, you know, over the course of time. Um, and then we also went back in January to kind of check back in with this family. You know, what's interesting is that as you were describing hearing Tyson speak, and then learning that he and his father lived at that intersection, you know, I, I think, and I'm, I work for a local news station, and and I feel like even with the network, had a reporter been there or had the attention still been so white hot on, uh, you know, on that on that little part of the world, you know, the demand for well, let's do let's put together 90 seconds on, on this father and son and let's, this, you know, this should air that night. Mm -hmm. At some point you decide, I'm guessing uh, that you decide that this could either be a three minute story that I send back to NBC or this could be something bigger. 
did you have the latitude to make that decision? Did you did you talk to anybody about this? What what is the communication like? And I see you laughing as I'm asking, so I can imagine this is a good story or a good answer. Uh, let's just say um, <laughs> if most of the editors I worked with had their way, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing a lot of the work that I end up doing. <laughs> I think there is like a push to you know do shorter stuff, but I think I, for me, I'm not. What I like about where we are as an industry is the fact that we as journalists, I, I think the way I look at it is like, I'm a journalist first, and then the medium and the format in which I work kind of it is determined by the story that you have. And so like some stories are simply not documentaries and some documentaries should have no place being cut down to 90 seconds and you know some stories are photo essays where you can really like capture the stillness of someone's life and some stories are videos and some stories are text articles where you can like really write in the context and i think it really just depends and so i never go out into any situation setting out to make a long-form documentary neither do i set out to do like a 90 second package i think it's just you meet people and you let the cadence of your interactions with them determine what kind of story you want to tell. And, you know, like, I think when I met Jamie and Tyson, you know, I was thinking like, oh, wow, this is a really interesting kid. He lives right, like, by this intersection. Like, what's it like for them? But as I was talking and talking and talking um, and just like watching them talk, they would have these very natural conversations that like really didn't involve you know, like I was just a fly on the wall and they were unpacking all these really interesting issues. And so then I kind of decided that's so like, wow, how if we're telling the story about a reckoning about race and, you know, our engagement with the police, I just like they kind of embodied some of these, not everything. And, you know, like, I think it's also a bit difficult to ask any one character to represent everything. But what they represented their slice of life for themselves i thought was really compelling just kind of like like on their own terms and so every day that i was filming it, i would show up and you know like i gave them labs and they kept them and you know it was it was a really weird time already because this is like during covid like covid's still happening but it was like at the height of us trying to figure out like what's safe and what's not safe and so I gave them labs and which they just kept and I taught them how to take it on and off. And I did that very much knowing that like, if they were wearing labs, I would be able to stay further back from them and like shoot from windows and things without having to worry about the audio. And so it is actually really nice because like the moment I would show up and I'd be like mic'd up in their house, it was also strange because I was like wearing an N95 and it was very like, we had to be really careful about these things and you know we i thought a lot to myself like okay well should we be going into someone's house right now what are there open windows what's the space and so covid really like it literally made me kind of like a fly on the wall that i would like really hang back and just like let them interact and to the point that i feel like they maybe forgot about me at some points in time <laughs> that like every so often i'm like i think i've been inside too long i'm gonna go out and take a break and just like just get some fresh air and like not very much from like a COVID standpoint. But then I would listen on the, on the lab and they'd still be having these like really interesting conversations, you know, about race, about fatherhood, about like, 
you know, and it was just so natural to listen to that, like, I just, like, the more that I stayed and, like, recorded them in film, the more I was just, like, compelled with, like, where their story was going. And, um, yeah, no, so it was, uh, it was really fascinating. That is something, and, you know, I, I, there's not really a way to spoil a, a story like that necessarily or, or a documentary like yours, but I will just say, I, I don't want to talk too much about it because I want the people listening to go and watch it. And you can watch it by uh, checking out the link in my show notes uh, for this episode. But what I will say is that you, sh- you know, you, you shot this in late spring or I'm sorry, what I did want to say before, you know, getting to my next question about it is just one observation watching it is that you really do notice while watching the piece that it just does feel so natural. And as someone who, who does the occasional half hour special myself, you know, I, I recognize how difficult of a feat it is to find, in your case, two people, but really one set of main characters who can carry a story about a single subject for that long. I mean, you really, ha- there has to be depth, there has to be, um, you know, they have to have something of, you know, not just immediate power to say, but of of long-ranging power. They have to be able to talk about it in various circumstances and it just seemed to happen so naturally so I, I it, it certainly sounds like in hearing you talk about that 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 is a a true uh compliment to your ability to recognize that that natural ability and then to let that breathe and, and it obviously showed not just in how you shot it but how you put the piece together at the end yeah i think it really like when it, I, I i talk about this a lot or think about this a lot it's just like who like what characters should we be giving voice to and who who is the, like the how do you engage with that and i think a lot of that is just like yeah being able to identify someone that you know has an interesting story but i think everyone has an interesting story and if you just like there i think everyone's lives are so inherently rich with like just things that are swirling around with and i'd like to think that if you just met people and listened and paid attention to the things that people are concerned about every single person could be a documentary if you just like listened in the right way and it's not to say that that's what we should do but like all this to say i think yeah no i think it's um that's what i love about what we do as journalists is that we have kind of this like very amazing license to you know like really dig deep in people's lives which is a privilege but also a huge responsibility to represent people right in a way that kind of like reflects like the truth and that's that's it's really tough yeah um now you've said you don't work at nbc news anymore uh you've said that uh there were often battles with your editors over how you uh spend spent your time there so it is uh, with that background that I ask this question, how did, uh, you know, where did this documentary find space on NBC News? Was it well-received by your editors? Did it did it find an audience? Uh, or did it find the audience you were hoping it found beyond myself? Uh, what can you tell me about that? Um, I, you know... I I think I think what's interesting with um, I I would just maybe speak to like the tension between like broadcast and digital and kind of like where our industry is going. I think um, there 
is a tendency for legacy media to be very set in their broadcast ways. And I think the conditions of like how people consume the news now uh, in, I would say, even my generation or Gen Z or people younger than me don't watch television in that traditional way. Like I don't watch television. I, If I were to get my news, I would sooner watch a documentary on YouTube. And I think in trying to get uh people at broadcast networks to understand that i think is just it's there's kind of a generational divide uh when it comes to um where they should spend their resources and so i think that's kind of like a battle that many newsrooms will always have to fight is just like how do we give space to like make more in-depth um reporting uh so you know like that's i i think that's a universally that's a universal newsroom like battle all the time and i think for me the big thing is just kind of like knowing that once you have a story which battles to fight and so i think that's kind of it is that like the the thing that i would also like remind a lot of my editors is that like during the time that i was making this documentary like i filed and did four like packages i shot photo essays we wrote a bunch of stories and so like i think what's what's interesting is that like people remember the documentaries that are impactful uh and it's kind of like when the fact that we're talking about this and not the other things is it's kind of like if you have a good story fight for it just really 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 fight for it because no one's ever gonna ask you to do it but yourself and but i think you have to have both like the humility to know that like that you're a part of a larger system but also the confidence to know that like once you have a story you fight for that because the thing is like we ask so much of our characters uh like we ask to be present for the most like intimate moments of someone's life where people really bear out their most vulnerable insecurities, hopes, wishes. And so you really have a responsibility to that. And I think every time I get into like a argument with an editor, like a, (laughs) about like why we need more time to do something, it's kind of like in service of like being able to tell a story uh, that will kind of like transcend you know that time and i think it's just it's all it's always a battle because i also do get it like there there's a daily it's just it's a very weird like things all have to come together this is the telling the story podcast i'm matt pearl he is ed o a nationally award-winning visual journalist and the man behind the intersection fatherhood at the heart of george floyd square ed um i appreciate everything you just said and and i want to kind of transition now to this final section of the podcast, which is specifically aimed at younger journalists getting started in their careers. And I know we talked quite a bit about how you got started and and all the work you did early on. I did want to kind of jump off what we were just talking about and, and speak to the rise in digital platforms for video journalism and how that, that opens the market for someone like yourself who doesn't want to necessarily do 90 second stories all the time and, and wants to be able to, you know, sink your teeth into these larger projects. Where are, are there platforms, and you can even talk about the intersection if you want, are there platforms where you feel like a project like that would have been better served 
that would have been able to elevate that and, and maybe reach an audience that even NBC News couldn't quite capture? That is a very fascinating question. I think, um, you know, for me, like, having okay, so when I started out as a journalist, I was a photographer, and the big shift was going from, like, physical print, like, magazines and newspapers to, the web, to like, online, which is how we get our news now. Right. And that was, like, the seismic shift that, like, when I was starting out, like, I'd only ever shot on digital cameras. I never shot film. And everyone saw us as, like, this really specific section of, like, that generation of journalists. This is, like, 2006, so I'm not that young. <laughs> but then what's interesting is that then, like, the next shift after online was this kind of like social media, like where is the intersection of like social media and like print and like websites. And that was like a 2015, 2014 thing. And then YouTube became a thing. And that's where like, you know, Vice comes in and like really shakes things up from like the just video slash like cinematic storytelling point of view. And now we're at this like really fascinating time where it's just like, you know, Netflix, Hulu, there's all these like really hot, well-made documentaries that are on Netflix that, you know, that's what I would watch over watching a nightly news broadcast. And so I think in that way, like it has, in my mind, never been a more exciting time to be a visual journalist, whether it's in like cinematic, whether it's in like long form storytelling or just even like you can make a 90 second package look really good and like really dig into like a lot of these things. And I think the big question that it comes down to is how much are news organizations willing to invest in that in terms of like resources and then people keep in mind that like this documentary that I made, you know, I worked with an editor, his name is Will and he's fantastic. He like he, for as much of, footage I shot, he spent weeks and weeks and months like looking at the footage and then making an edit out of that. And from, it was from that, that like we would have these like big conversations about like, okay, what, like where, like where do we put every scene? What are we, you know, working on, et cetera. And then we had another producer named Nirma who also worked on this as well. So all this is to say, I think what's interesting is that like where we are as a medium is like, I really hate the fact that you're out there as like a one person band and you have to do everything. And the broadcast side has like all these resources of like sound people and like DITs and like, like all that stuff. And there's kind of like nothing in between the like solo shooter and the huge crews. And I think that like, that's the bridge that I think we need to get to on like the digital side, which is understanding that like, if you want to make documentaries or make, good packages you know you need an editor like a video editor who like is like really good at what they do you you know you need like like you know like i think it's just kind of like knowing the like the resources that you need to put to make stuff good and i think that's kind of like the big question mark for a lot of news organizations but like i would say this it's never been more of an exciting time to do this because the technology is all there and we can just like show up places and stay forever and it's great actually but the big question is will people put in the resources for that so for young visual journalists who you know they look at NBCNews.com and they would much rather, you know, they see a correspondent on NBC News and they see you, what you were doing, and they say, oh, I'd much rather do what Ed's doing. 
what is the lane? What is the path for someone like that who wants to just dive into not just visual storytelling, but long form documentary style visual storytelling? Um, yeah, I would say it's a really fine balance because like there's very few publications like every news organization i think has their very specific legacy and yeah it is true nbc is very much about their talent quote talent or their correspondence and that's the thing and you know like but i think there are i think for visual journalists starting out i would say get into the fields as quickly as they can and just start telling stories and i think there it's really kind of that simple because what's nice now is that the technology to be able to just like shoot video is all there like shoot on your iphone or something like it doesn't matter anymore and that's what's amazing but what is what no matter how things change in terms of like news organizations or technology the one constant is like are you able to find interesting stories and interesting characters and I think that's kind of for people starting out, like know that there are a multitude of really interesting people that you can be covering just literally like on your doorstep. And I think don't I think there's this tendency to kind of like to make this distinction between like national news, local news, international news. And as far as I can am concerned, like Stories are stories no matter where you go, and every person has an interesting story. So there's nothing stopping you from being curious and just going out, meeting people, and like just filming people's lives. And I think that's kind of like ultimately for anyone starting out, just start doing it and tell the stories that are accessible to you and like use use your surroundings to kind of like hone your skills as a storyteller, whether you're a photographer or a filmmaker or a, any kind of journalist. Um, and I, I hope that makes sense. Like It does. I, I think, like you said, that, that there are differences in the quality of gear and, and the quality of resources, but you know, what levels the playing field ultimately is the stories that you find. And yeah. that that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. I think especially too, like it's, if you're a student like you can go out anywhere and literally like find someone interesting and like to give you a point of reference like i live in new york right now but i actually like when i was in minneapolis i was like thinking of moving there because i'm just like why 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 not just like be able to keep reporting here and i think that's kind of like what i miss about um like living in New York has always kind of bothered me for exactly that reason, because, you know, like, yeah, I should also like just listen to myself and like cover more things in New York. But like, I always feel like in that time, like we're being sent out places and I just want to stay longer in every place that I've ever sent. And, and I always look into like Airbnbs and trying to figure out how I can like just live in the places that I work, because ultimately that's what where you can create the best work is when you can just stay in one place long enough for people's stories to have like to pay out to, to kind of like play out over time. And I think for, especially also like local news journalists, like that's kind of the privilege that you can kind of just like drop in on sources and kind of like see how people's lives evolve over time. And I think that's, it's, it's really cool. Fascinating 
Fascinating stuff, Ed. Uh, two more things and then we'll sign off. First, what are three pieces of storytelling you have seen, read, heard, or watched in the last year that have influenced your work? Who's inspiring you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, that is a fantastic question, actually. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, in this last year, um, the New York Times did a piece in, I think it was Emily Ryan, uh, and I think the, a New York Times crew embedded in a hospital um, and I, during COVID in New York. And I remember watching like just the way that they were like sequencing uh, this piece. It was actually really like the way they edited, uh, I think the first scene, it's something that I won't forget. It was, I think they were like counting all the different, the, the bodies of the people who had died of COVID in this hospital. And like the way that they filmed and edited that sequence was just completely heartbreaking. That really just kind of like, to me, really showed like the impact of COVID to a population, a lot of people in the States who don't believe it's a thing. And I think that like, that was the first piece that stuck out to me. And I thought to myself like, wow, this is why we need to be telling stories like this, which is just to show the toll of this pandemic. And so that's, that's one piece. Um, can I, can I just say that? Like, I can't, I'm trying to... <laughs> you want to stop at one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, let, let's, like, let's broaden it out then. Any, anything more broadly that you, that it just in your life, in your adult life that has influenced the way that you operate or people who have influenced you? I feel really lucky that um, as journalists, we're kind of like all really supportive of each other. I think that's like, like we're all in this together. And so just even in, in this in this year, like in during the George Floyd protests, I'll just get to give you an example. Like when I was attacked, you know, my the person who came to basically like rescue me was this photojournalist like Peter Van Ackmel, who I had covered a lot of different crises in the Middle East with. And he just like took me and he just immediately just like people started to help me like so quickly. And, you know, like all my clothes were completely ruined. And then Mike Shum, this fellow, this colleague who I know I've met like once or twice, literally came over to my hotel and just like gave me all his clothes uh, to wear and he did my laundry and I think in that way like I and just like I think I'm not answering a question but like I just remember no. like that like I guess when I think about the people who have like affected me in this field it's those moments where people are where journalists kind of like really 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 look out for each other and that influences both like the work that I do, because I know so many of my colleagues are doing amazing work, but also like approaching the act of journalism and storytelling in the same way that kind of recognizes like they're doing their jobs and we're doing our jobs. And we're kind of like, it's that togetherness that helps all of us like grow as storytellers. Um, it's that kind of like looking out for each other because they are telling a story that you're not going to tell and you're going to tell a story that they're not going to tell. And we need kind of like a multitude of all these voices uh, so that we can have like a better understanding of each other as human beings in this world. I hope that. 
That definitely did not answer the question, Ed. Okay. But, but, but that was a beautiful story, and uh, and I appreciate your telling it. Uh, I'm so sure. I, I just copied. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like I said, a beautiful, beautiful story, and I appreciate your telling it. And uh, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question: Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Yeah, I think. Again, in a lot of documentary work and in journalism, just everything we do is, I think, a team effort. I think in a lot of the work that I do, you know, like if I think of, you know, the documentary that we're talking about, like so many people had to come together to make a piece what it is. And I think it's never just you singularly it's you talking to your colleagues it's you working with your seniors and your editors it's you finding the people in your news organization that empower you to do things and you know it's like it's it's never just about you it's about kind of like the team that you kind of like assemble or that you have and so i think it's really important like when you're working on things to be to really understand that to know that like you're one voice but like every piece that you do try to get as many different perspectives as you can you know like have people like of all shapes and sizes and people to like watch your stuff and really like kind of like get feedback because you know what the the work that you do is this like living and breathing document that like evolves with with how time passes in both good and bad ways and i think in that way it's really important to like just just know the power and responsibility of that and like to really like get different voices and then the other thing too is like i think in any um piece that you do just know that like you really really owe your characters or your quote subjects which i know we don't really say anymore like they're giving so much of their lives to you in the sense that like they're trusting you to really not mess it up. But it's also like a really interesting balance because we're asking so much of our characters, but we're also journalists in a way that like we have to like reflect their lives as the truth. And even if that means like asking difficult questions or showing things that might not be so flattering. And I think there's just a very, it's it's really difficult and you should always be asking yourself those questions. Is like, are you telling their story right? Are you being too sympathetic? Are you not being, like, are you, and it like, you'll never have like the right answer to any of this. But I would say that like, I've never published a piece where I wasn't like completely freaked out the moment it published of like, crap, what have we not thought of? Like, what are the different variables in terms of like reception that people, like what questions didn't we ask? Did we not talk about this? Should we, like, and I think you should be asking those questions because the moment you're not is when you're not doing your job right. Yeah, it is such a balance in that you need to immerse yourself and yet also somehow remain at an objective distance or, or whatever distance you can to tell the story properly. So I think, I think the importance of continually examining if and how you're doing that is, is, is key. So, yeah. And we're at a really specific point now, right now in exactly, uh, you know, this 
is who has the right to tell what story and how and what our responsibilities are. And I think that's, it is a fascinating discussion that has no right or wrong answer. But I think as long as you're asking the question and you're really thinking about the implications and what that means, like, I think you'll never get it right, but and there will always be someone who will find one section or like there will always be something that you did wrong. But like, I think you just really need to ask that question and really just think through like what you're representing. And I think ultimately that then goes back to like, are you able to fight for the time and space to be able to ask those questions? And I think that comes from both like in our role as journalists, like this is an institutional question now, which is like, will we as journalists have the space to unpack so a multitude of issues that don't fit neatly into 90 seconds? And I think when I think about the work that we should all be doing is just like, how do we rise above the day-to-day to be asking these questions like that? And how do we have the space to do that? And that's what we should all be kind of really like pushing for. Ed O, thank you so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. This is a great conversation. I appreciate your time. Cool. Thanks for having me. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe as well. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist, Second Edition. Thank you to Jazar for the theme music. Thanks to Ed O for joining me as my guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.